Brought to you by BedroomBattlefields.com, this is the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast. This episode of the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast is brought to you by Warbases. I first discovered Warbases shortly after getting back into the hobby. They're based here in Scotland and they produce their own range of movement trays, terrain, gaming accessories and even miniatures. My very first order from Warbases was back when I was putting together a few skirmish warbands, but also wanted to build an army for Kings of War. Warbases regiment trays came in really handy here because I could rank up a bunch of miniatures even when they were on round bases. You can buy regiment trays with magnet holes too, which will help stop those pesky standard bearers from toppling over every time you breathe on them. These days I'm using a lot of their close order trays to rank up my 15mm troops. Warbases do custom orders too, and they recently made the perfect movement tray for my Goblin Wolf Riders who are based on 15 by 20 millimeter bases. You could also get things like custom, acrylic or MDF tokens and casualty markers. If you're about to dive headfirst into Warhammer the Old World, then they've got movement trays to fit that too, including that funny lance formation thing. Me personally, I've never been one to pay attention to the official base sizes or dimensions any one game or rule set, but that changed recently having got into Mantic's Armada. In that game, base size is important for movement, and war bases were able to sort me out with a bunch of bases for my wee boats, which was lovely. Warbase's laser-cut MDF terrain, just like their bases and movement trays, are incredible value for money. They've got 10, 15, 20 and 28mm stuff in all genres, from historical to fantasy to science fiction. And who doesn't love the smell of laser-cut MDF? Finally, their Bifrost miniature range has a lovely old hammer feel to it, with lots of cool adventurers and fantastical creatures. I really like the Birdmen, and they've got this great Lovecraftian necromancer too. Honestly, can't say enough good things about Warbases, which is handy, seen as they're sponsored in this episode of the podcast. So please go and check them out the next time you're in the market for bases, trays, terrain or miniatures by going to bedroombattlefields.com forward slash warbases. That's bedroombattlefields.com forward slash W-A-R-B-A-S-E-S. And with that all said and done, let's now kick on to the main topic of this week's episode, focusing on Man of War and remote gaming. With a go-to guy on both topics, it is of course Chris Snyder. I got us started by asking Chris, what's on his painting table right now? Yeah, you know, I was afraid you were going to ask that, because um, my painting desk right now is, it's like a revolving door of projects that just keeps, they seem to keep cycling through. Um... The thing that I would like to be working on exclusively right now is um, I'm, I'm painting some 40K second edition armies, two armies simultaneously uh, with a remote game campaign in mind. I've already played uh, both armies up to a 500 point level, and now I'm painting them up to a thousand and working in chunks like that. And I'm kind of at a at a stalemate right now with that project because I'm a little frustrated with how things are going. And whenever I get to that point where I'm unhappy with the way I'm painting, it's tempting to want to switch to something else. So that's hence the revolving door of, of projects. So I have a couple uh, half painted models on my desk, but uh, the most recently finished were uh, some Eldar models and I'm hoping to get back to them soon. 
So what what exactly are you getting frustrated with with your painting then? Well, um, so the way I usually like to paint things, um, if I if I'm doing a group like a unit or something like that, as soon as I get the first one done and I'm happy with everything, the way it's looking, the color selection, etc., then it's smooth sailing from there because I can just repeat the process a number of times to get the unit done. But right now I'm I'm just not quite sure about the the color choices that I'm making. So it's an Eldar army, and what's the other force? Uh, Space Wolves. And what sort of era are we talking here? That's uh, second edition. Uh, technically, the the Space Wolves are Rogue Trader era, so uh, everything is pretty much ninety two, ninety three, something like that, ninety four, around in that ballpark. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How uh, you know in the past, if you've got frustrated with something or a bit stuck, how have you found a way around that? Typically, well, <laughs> you, well, there's the the frustration part. How do I get past the frustration part? I usually just switch to something else. Um, my go-to relaxing thing to paint is uh, like epic scale, which is like, you know six millimeter scale stuff. Uh, I seem to, I just find that kind of relaxing to do. And that will often kind of cleanse the palette a little bit. Um, and sometimes it just takes a, a while to to look at a model again after some period of time and say, oh, you know, that wasn't so bad. I, or I just, uh, like in this case, I'm, I'm painting a number of models and then kind of picking the one I like the best, and then I'll probably end up stripping the others and starting over again, which is kind of seems crazy to do, but that's probably what I'll do. I'm being very much a perfectionist with these two armies because uh, they're definitely like labors of love. I'm trying to like recreate, uh, or I should say create the armies that I wanted when I got into the hobby, but never had either i didn't own them or i wasn't able to paint at a a decent level so that's my it's my love letter to myself i guess is painting those two armies and you've you've obviously got like a decent collection when it comes to man of war as well like how did how did that come about uh well let's see the man of war collection began so i i guess i i should kind of tell a little bit of my just a, a snippet of my hobby story like a lot of us i was into miniatures back in the you know in the past for me it was the early 90s and then at some point i shifted away from that sold a lot of stuff uh some things i still held on to but i was at a point with uh with my board game hobby where i was kind of thinking you know maybe i kind of miss i miss uh the miniature hobby and the reason for that is because with with board games although i i love board games um if i'm not playing the games they're just sitting on my shelf and the great thing about the miniature hobby is you can interact with the hobby even when you're not playing you know by collecting and painting and making train and all that stuff. So I wanted to be able to experience more hobby time without, 
you know, actually playing. So I got back into some miniature games that I remembered from the past, and Man of War was one of them. And I uh, was lucky enough to kind of scour the internet and find a couple uh, used copies and just through a course of eBay searches and uh, trade group searches, just was able to kind of build up my collection to the way it is now. And, and like I own, I think everything for the game now. Um, but yeah, I guess that was the question, right? How did I get back in? How did I get into man of war? Yeah, that was, and the funny thing was, I, I think I might've painted, uh, I don't know, three or four fleets before I actually played my first game of it. So that's kind of, you know, kind of an odd thing maybe. What appeals to you about Man of War then? Um, Is the sort of nautical naval warfare, is that something that you're interested in outside of the hobby or? No, no, not, not at all. Um, I think the thing that got me in, that got me interested in Man of War was when I first discovered miniatures, um, prior to this, I was playing role-playing games and I had met a friend who had introduced me to like White Dwarf magazine and the whole games workshop stuff. And, uh, through a White Dwarf magazine, I discovered a local game store that I was unaware of. And when I first went into there, uh, that was around 93, I think is when Man of War came out, but Man of War had just come out. And, uh, it was, you know, featured in the White Dwarf magazines that I was buying at the time. So I bought it and it was, I guess, my first Games Workshop game. So that's probably why I have some nostalgic feelings for it. Um, I, I remember buying it and uh, utterly failing at putting together and, and painting the ships. Uh, it was just a little too uh, tricky to for me to, to come up with. But uh, at some point I went back to the game store to see, you know, is anyone playing Man of War now? And I think, you know, by that point, Blood Bowl had come out and they were like, no, we're, we've moved on to Blood Bowl now. So I bought a Blood Bowl team and worked at painting that and then went back to the store and, okay, let's play some Blood Bowl. And by that point, oh no, Necromunda's out now. So we've all moved on to that. So that kind of uh that's a whole other story there my frustration with trying to keep up with new releases and and uh you know the the game store's tendency to to play the new thing but um yeah man of war is something that i've uh always had a fondness for just because it was one of my first loves uh even though i wasn't playing it you know i was i really loved the the models and and you know the articles in white dwarf and stuff like that um, and the thing that I like about Man of War, I would say, is um, the system itself is is really unique. Uh, it kind of reminds me of what I like about a game like Battletech, but I don't like Battletech. I hate Battletech because it's so uh, it's so heavy with charts and and it really slows the action down. But for me, Man of War takes the the best of that. And what that is, is the, the incremental damage. Um, it's not like some games where you take damage and then you're dead and you remove it from the, 
from the, the board. Um, in this case, ships take damage and it affects them uh, in, in various ways. So it's more of a, it's kind of a battle of attrition. Uh, and I kind of, I just kind of like that. And of course I love the, the Warhammer world, Warhammer setting. So, uh, that has appealed to me, but no, I really don't have any love of nautical games. And, and I don't think I would like any historical nautical games. Um, for me, it's the, it's the Warhammer world. It's the um, the way that the back and forth flow of the of the game is played, and um, yeah, I just I just like the overall feel of it. You said that like when you you know you started collecting and painting ships and stuff, and it was a wee while till you got around to actually playing the game. How how did you find? Uh, you know the rules initially were they were they pretty easy to pick up, or did it take a few attempts? No, they're they're very easy to pick up. Um, however, uh, Man of War was made in an era when Games Workshop games tended to include rules that were like hidden within paragraphs. So I thought the rules seemed pretty intuitive, but it always seems to surprise me when I play a game and I'll reread something and realize, Oh, I, I've been playing it wrong all this time. I didn't realize, you know, this or that, but, uh, for the most part, I think it's, it's very intuitive. And I, I know last week you had uh, cam on and him and I have played a, a few games of man of war and, and have had discussions about it. And sometimes we'll find things that, you know, we didn't realize, uh, but I think we're at a point now where we've gotten, we finally got, got everything figured out. Do you think there's like a certain satisfaction in that? I mean, uh, you know, like when you when you play like a computer game or that, it's all made for you. But when you're playing games in our hobby, there's a process of onboarding the, the rules into your head and there's a lot of trial and error and it's very rare to hear of people playing games and, you know, they come, especially if it's just the first or second time, you know, there's almost like always a case where at the end of the game you realise, oh, we weren't doing this thing, we weren't doing that or whatever. Mm-hmm. And over time, like there is a real satisfaction, isn't there, when you finally feel like you're totally on top of a game and you pretty much know it inside out because it's like this long, hard-won sort of skill, if you like. Yeah, and not only that, it it's a good feeling when if you're getting something wrong, if there's a voice, you know, that says something doesn't feel right about this, something just seems wrong. And then you realize, Oh, that's right. It is wrong. And it makes you feel like, okay, the game is better than I thought it was because what I was doing wrong was seemed uneasy with me. And, you know, now that I figured it out, it feels more right. And uh, I think that's a credit to the game when, when, when you're doing it correctly, it feels more right. Do you sort of keep up with a lot of Man of War communities online? I mean, I, I know that, you know, games from this era, a lot of them have very cult followings. And, and how does Man of War sit in that spectrum? You know, like you've, you've obviously got massive communities around games like More Time, which came a bit later. So, I mean, what, what's the appetite like for Man of War out there these days? Uh, I don't know if I 
am qualified to answer that question. Uh, one thing I will say about, well, Man of War, and I guess my feeling is that the it's growing. The Man of War community is growing because I will often see posts of people um, who are, you know, getting into the hobby and they've, they've gotten some 3d printed ships and they're uh, constructing a lot of the stuff on their own. So I know that it's a growing, it's a growing community. Now, when I say that uh, at the same time, there's just as many maybe posts of, of people saying, Hey, I'm selling my stuff. Uh, how much is this worth? You know? So I guess that's kind of normal, but it, it, yeah, I would say it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good community. Uh, and it's a healthy community. Um, you mentioned Mordheim. I, I'm going to have to rag on Mordheim a little bit. Um, I noticed on, on the, the Mordheim groups, I often will see posts of people either giving suggestions or looking for suggestions for house rules to the game uh, to fix this or that, you know, something that they find doesn't appeal to them. Uh, that's kind of a, a bit of a red flag for me if, uh, you know, something needs house rolling. But for the most part with Man of War, rarely do I ever see any, um, any, suggestions for that if anything maybe some fan created stuff uh not too many rules questions because you know like i said i think the rules are pretty intuitive and they're also pretty self-contained so there's nothing um there's nothing that really causes a major stir with the with the rules or, or, or the the hobby as, as far as that goes it, it does seem like a game that's got a very easy on-ramp as well. Like, I mean, I've I've got the um, Armada rule set, the Mantics Armada mm-hmm. rule book, which is obviously a, you know, a, a, a sort of alternative to Man of War. Uh, and I've purchased some great uh, 3D printed ships on Etsy, like I think six each, you know, six aside. Uh, and it seems like I'll need very little terrain or that. And obviously Man of War will be in the, sa- the same boat, no pun intended, but you know, yeah. you, you don't need a lot to play it, do you? Oh, no, no. Um, in fact, that's what really has helped to get me playing the game more is that you don't need too many ships. Um, whenever I play, the terrain that I'm using is still, I just use the terrain out of the box. Uh, I haven't got up to making my own terrain yet, although it's something that I would like to do at some point. Uh, one thing I, another thing I, I will say about Man of War that I really like is the diversity of the fleets. I'm kind of amazed at how how much diversity is there, and I'll use an example of uh, like y- you might have a squadron of of ships, uh, three ships, and that squadron will be 150 points. Now, if you compare that to some other games uh, that uses the point system, <clears throat> you'll have uh, d- different points that are given to the stats. So, uh, like maybe a spear is worth a point, and a shield is worth a half a point, or whatever. 
and you take all these elements and throw them together and then you calculate what the point value is for that that model but like i said with man of war it's kind of it it's different because um you figure 150 points for three ships okay that's 50 points a ship and each of those ships is then made so that they're somewhat equal to each other and you know some ships might have uh, a better armor save and some might have you know more crew or more weapons or whatever and they all for the most part kind of balance to one another yet they all play for me anyway they just play very differently and when i'm playing like an elf fleet it it just feels different than if I was playing, uh, you know, Bretonian or an Empire fleet. So I really like that. Um, that's something that really interests me is how much diversity between the fleets you can get in such a small package. Now, the, the downside or the, the thing that I might be a little lacking is that, um, like if I have an Empire fleet and you have an Empire fleet, our fleets pretty much look the same because there's not much you can do to, um, you know, to make your fleet much different. There's you know, a limited number of ships involved, and there's some requirements that you have to to meet. But um, yeah, still, I I I found that that diversity is really you know something else that really interests me about the game. Did you buy the? the game when it was in print back in the day yeah that was my first game that i bought yeah uh and of course i i sold it lost it you know and then i i was able to you know buy another copy many many years later do you remember what you paid for it back in the day and and what was like what came in the box as well uh well i, I know exactly what came in the box but i have no idea what i paid for it um i mean that wouldn't be too hard to, to look up but uh, certainly, <laughs> you know, I'm sure if I saw the price, I'd be like, oh, that's it. You know, it was only only 50 bucks or less. It's, I'm sure what it, what it might have been. I don't know. But yeah, it, it, the great thing about the game is uh, it has all of the pretty much all the materials that you would need, except for the models themselves were uh, pretty lacking. I think the only models that it comes with are some war galleys, which are part of a, um, an empire fleet, but there's certainly not enough to, to make a, a legal, uh, full fleet. And, uh, the other, like the opposing force is, uh, again, more war galleys and you, you just call them pirates instead. So if, if you were to buy just the box, uh, Yes, it has everything you need to play except for the, the, the models, but it has all the all the stats and, and everything, um, all the components otherwise. I take it it didn't come with like a mat or anything like that back then. No, no. But it does it did come with the terrain, the terrain I mentioned, which is um uh cardboard, um illustrated cardboard. And I think that the artwork on that is amazing. It still holds up. Um, that's again, what I use for my terrain when I play now. Um, but that's primarily because I play, uh, mostly I play remote. So in a way it's kind of nice to have the terrain, not, uh, not block any, any line of sight. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's low, 
low to the ground, low profile, you know, so, you know, you, you never have to have worry about any ambiguities of, of, um, you know, line of sight or, um, you know, things like that with, with the flat terrain. Yeah. Yeah. I'll definitely ask you some stuff about remote gaming shortly. Uh, sure. just, um, a couple more things on, on Man of War. Like, what do you, what do you play on surface wise? Like, do you have a mat or did you make anything yourself for the scene? Yeah, I use a, um, for, for Man of War, for a lot of games, I like to use, uh, a neoprene mat, uh, the mat that I use, which it's funny because I've talked to several other, uh, man of war players and we all use the exact same mat. It's a, it's a mat that is sold by a company called, um, frontline games or FLG. So you can Google that FLG mats and man of war is played on a, uh, typically a four by four, uh, area. So that's what I use a four by four neoprene mat. And it's beautiful, and the ships slide across very nicely. Um, the other nice thing about a neoprene mat is if you were to pick up a model and accidentally drop it, it's fine because it lands on a nice spongy surface, and you don't have to worry about about that. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend anybody playing, um, you know, Man of War to, to play on a neoprene mat. Now, prior to that, I was using a piece of cloth. It was like a crushed velvet cloth. And it, it looked really cool because it, it looked like it had waves in it. But uh, the problem is if if that cloth starts to slide, everything slides with it. So, um, you know, you could have some dangerous moments if it wants to slide to the edge of the world and off to the side. Yeah, but, but of a uh, tsunami effect. Yeah, yeah. So on the on the remote gaming side of things, then how did that how did that initially come about? Like, how did you sort of come up with the idea to to try and do stuff like this? Well, it wasn't me. I can't I can't claim credit for uh, remote gaming. Uh, it certainly wasn't my idea. Um, I guess I should say, in addition to how I got involved in remote gaming, uh, why I got involved in remote gaming, and that was. Uh, pretty much I, I didn't have anybody locally that I knew of who was playing uh, the games I wanted to play. Now there was, you know, the local game store and I suppose I could have played a game there, but, um, you know, then you're kind of a slave to, to play what others are playing. And it seems kind of odd. Well, I, I understand why, but um, if I were to go into a game store right now and, and bring all my fleets and say, hey, who wants to play Man of War? Um, you don't need to buy anything. I have everything here. Um, it's really hard to get anybody interested in that. And I can understand it because, you know, people want to also have the product themselves. But, um, yeah, it's just it's just a non-starter. Nobody wants to play something that isn't uh, readily available. So, Remote gaming, I I heard about it through um, uh, Josh at the Crown of Command. Um, I think in a podcast, I've heard him mention it. And I know he wrote an article on remote gaming in uh, the Hero Hammer fanzine. And I thought, hey, that could be a way for me to play some games. So I reached out to him and asked him for some advice. 
And he said, well, let's just play a game and we'll see how, you, you know, you can kind of see how it goes. Uh, I forget what game we played initially, probably Space Hulk. Um, but from there, it just kind of snowballed. And next thing you know, I was <laughs> playing remote games all over the place and and uh, was kind of dubbed the ambassador of remote gaming. So, um, yeah. Now I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a little piece of information that you do not know. Uh, this is an exclusive, um, that, and you're hearing it first. So I have played remote games with, uh, like Cam, who you talked to last week, and of course uh, Josh from the Crown of Command, who you've also spoken to. And the reason why we all played Man of War remotely is because we all had painted models for that game. And I've heard people say that, oh, Man of War is a good game to play remotely. Well, it's because that's what we had. Um, if we all had painted uh, Mordheim warbands, we'd probably be talking about how good of a game Mordheim is to play remotely. So it's just, that's just what we had. And that's kind of why I've been playing um, Man of War remotely, because I have a number of fleets painted already that I can do that. Mm. Do you think it still lends itself well to remote gaming though? Like, even though the reason was like the, the one you've just given? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. And now I kind of hesitate to say that one game is better to play remotely than another. I think, and this is my my belief, is that the best game to play remotely is the game that you are most passionate about playing. Because if it's something that you're really interested in, you're going to find a way to make it happen. <clears throat> and um, I've kind of been challenged. Uh, you know, some people, I've heard some people say, well, well, you can't play this game very well. Um, Necromunda was one that, that, came up that oh you can't play Nekamuda it's it's got too much terrain and line of sight's gonna be horrible and and I thought well I'm gonna do it. <laughs> so I played a number of games of Necromunda and loved it and hopefully I'll get to back to playing that again soon. Uh but yeah I mean we can talk about you know some of the specifics of of what makes a game maybe easier to play remotely or um you know, some of the challenges that some games, yeah. uh, you, you know, some games have. But Yeah, I mean, I'm, um, I'm just realising as well that we've maybe got slightly ahead of ourselves in assuming that the listener knows what we mean by a remote game. So I, I'm guessing, yeah. like, you know, a remote game, from my understanding, is that either you or I have the game, the, the two armies, the terrain, all set up, and the other person is interacting with them over a over a camera basically over a stream yeah so they're asking the you know the person with the game to to move their troops around is that a pretty fair assessment of it yeah i'm really glad you bring that up because having discussions with people on on you know facebook and discord and seeing comments um i realized that different people have different ideas of what remote gaming is and there's a lot of misconceptions of that um, and sometimes I wonder, like, where do they get this idea? Um, and I think it's because they're basing their idea of what remote gaming is on 
other games that they've seen remotely. So if you're playing a role-playing game remotely or a board game remotely, that can be totally different than a miniature you know, tabletop game remotely. <clears throat> and I, I see there's some confusion in that. Like, for example, uh, with a, a remote role-playing game, you know, you might be using uh, a, a website like Roll20 or Foundry or something like that. And with, um, with a board game, you might be using Tabletop Simulator uh, and I can I can see that for those games, but for for a miniature game, for me, my understanding the 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 way I see it is exactly how you described it. It's a camera and a microphone, and one player has um, one one player's the host, and he's controlling everything, and the other player uh, is the you know the remote player. And if you have a hard time visualizing it, just think of. Uh, if you, let's say you went on to YouTube and you were going to watch a battle report on YouTube, and that's something I like to do. There's a number of channels that I, I follow regularly, and, and I watch people playing games remotely. Like, um, I'll just shout out a few, like Gorilla Miniatures, Ash at Gorilla Miniatures has a great channel there. Of course, I mentioned the, <clears throat> the Call of the Crown and the Bring in Battle guys, uh, Dice Hammer. Um, oh, second ed gaming, uh, uh, Johnny Watson, Minnesota's ed. There's like so many different channels out there. And before I go any further, let me just say, now, you know, I am strongly in the nineties games workshop camp. So pretty much everything I mentioned is going to be nineties games workshop related. But, um, anyway, back to what I was saying. If you're watching a battle report where, you know, guys are standing around a table and they're rolling dice and you're watching the game live as it's being played, that's what remote gaming is. You're watching a game. The difference is you're participating in it. So if you were watching this battle report and the, the person behind the camera said, uh, okay, Matthew, it's your turn. Uh, where do you want to move your units? Or uh, I just wounded you so you need to make a, a five up armor save what did you get you know like you're watching it and you're participating in it so as the participant you don't need anything except for you know maybe some dice depending on what the game is you know minimum uh components but yeah for the most part that's the kind of experience you're getting is about a report but you're part of it if you're in the market for a t-shirt, mug, sticker or magnet with Goblin Green bases written on it, then today is your lucky day. We've teamed up with Tee Public to create a merch store for the podcast, which you could visit by going to bedroombattlefields.com forward slash store. So go and get yourself some Goblin Green bases branded merch today and bonus points if you send in a photo of you being escorted out of your local games workshop. That's bedroombattlefields.com slash store. And now back to the show. Would I? So I, I would say say we'd have a remote game. I would roll my own dice mm -hmm. and just tell you sort of what I've got, and uh, and then I could maybe ask you, you know, uh, Chris, go and 
go and give me a look with the camera. I want to see what my archers could see. Say we're playing Warhammer yes. or whatever. Like, give me a line of sight on them. Uh, you know, let's see what these pikemen are up to. Where are they sort of based? And are you just able to then? Is it a single camera setup? Are you just moving the camera around to wherever the 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 opponent wants to have a look? Well, I'm going to speak only from my own personal experience. So I, when I play remotely, I use my phone. And so I have one camera. Um, I've, I know there are others who use multiple cameras. And the reason I like to use one camera is because um, I like to have, I, I kind of think of myself as like a, a director of photography, you know, and I'm making a movie and I like to have everything in frame. And I think once you get into like frame in frame, where you'll have, you know, your, your camera and off to the side a little bit is a dice tray and over here is something else. I, th- I think the more, the more clutter you add to the screen, the, the less you're able to, to get a large view. I, I want to provide the best view that I can, which means, uh, you know, you can see everything height and, and width and, you know, you can get as close to seeing things as you can. And so kind of to answer your question about, you know, the camera movement, it, it all depends on what game I'm playing. Um, if I'm playing Space Hulk, uh, everything is fitting in frame. So I'll have a camera and it's up on a tripod and I like to have it uh, pretty high, almost like, a, you know, a bird's eye view. There's a, a certain sweet spot angle that I like to use where you can see everything, but uh, nothing is obscuring anything else and that camera is going to stay there for the whole game and everything that you need to see is is able to be seen if i'm playing um like if i'm playing man of war i usually do the same thing except uh at some point now man of war that's a that's a four by four uh area so to start the game i'm usually pretty far up and because i we need to see the deployment zones once everything's deployed, a turn or two has has gone by. Things have shifted more towards the center of the table. So at that point, I usually bring the camera down a little bit and and frame things a little, uh, you know, a little more nicely so that you can get some more detail. Uh, now, if I'm playing a game that requires a lot of line of sight, uh, and I'll use a, I'll use the example of. Necromunda. In fact, I'll, let, let me just walk you through how I would set up a game of Necromunda. So Necromunda is on a, a four by four uh, area usually, but for for the Necromunda game, my table is—I mean, that's going to come right up to the edge of my the, the width of my table. So I'll try to shrink the size down a little bit, maybe more of a three by three as far as the terrain goes. That gives me a, a border all around the edge of the of the table, and I'll have a, a camera stand. So my you know my phone's on a stand, and that way I can I can move it around and set it down at any point uh, around the table and be able to have my hands free. Uh, and when I set up the terrain, I try to do it so that the terrain is not symmetrical, because I don't want everything to look the same. I want you know, maybe a really high building over here on the left and maybe on the right, I have what looks like a dock 
you know, or maybe in you know, lots of storage containers or something like that. So that um, no matter what side of the table I'm standing from, you can get an idea of where you're at. Like, what am I on the east side, the west side? You know, based on this, um, uh, the terrain that's that's different. So uh, during the game, I will move the camera around. Like you said, if you say, um, "Hey, what can that? What can that?" Um, you know, the guy with the heavy machine gun C and I can take the camera like literally right behind the model so that it's, it's the model I view. In fact, in a way it's better than if you were there because I can get my camera in, uh, you know, some really interesting places. And it's funny because sometimes my, you know, the, the remote player will say, um, hold the camera there for a second. I want to take a picture of that. You know, they want to have a picture of this is what, the model can see because you really feel more immersive when you're, when you're right there. And then um, like in between phases or in between turns, I'll usually do a recap where I'll pull the camera back and I'll walk around the table with it. And I'll just kind of talk about where, you know, what just happened or where everything's at so that we get a, a refresher, you know, like I'll say, okay, the end of turn one and your leader and two juves are moving up here on the on the right side and and you know they have line of sight through this area here for for their overwatch um and then i'll describe where all the models are in relation to each other and just to kind of to get a uh kind of cleanse the palette a little bit and and get a a idea of what's happening big picture and then as the the turn uh, begins, <clears throat> we'll pick a model and say, okay, and we'll get real close into that model and say, here's what, here's what they can see. Here's, uh, they can, you know, move, they can, you know, move four inches. So that could get them probably up to around this point, or if they run, they can get up to here. And yeah, it's just kind of talking things out. And, uh, yeah, the camera, the camera can move or stay the same, no matter, you know, depending on what game you're playing. So we're, we're hearing about like some of the the real positives of it. Then I mean, obviously, it it, it means that a game is accessible no matter where you are in the mm-hmm. world. Uh, you've talked about these cool camera angles and things like that that you mm-hmm. can get as well. What are some of the you know on the flip side, like the challenges that you faced with remote gaming, and how did you overcome them? I kind of think about that. the The major challenge is actually scheduling. Um, however, that's more of a me problem (laughs) than a you problem, because sometimes I have a hard time. Uh, I kind of have a limited window of time free that I can play some things and we're all busy because we're all, uh, you know, we're, we're all at an age where we have responsibilities, but that really has nothing to do with remote play because, uh, you can have scheduling problems with, you know, your next door neighbor. Uh, the challenge, some of the challenges, uh, are a game that has a lot of components that maybe your opponent doesn't have. Um, but I, I don't like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to say that you can't play a game because you don't have the stuff because for the most part I can, you know, we can get that to to you. Um, I'll give an example of. 
Warhammer Quest. I played a Warhammer Quest campaign for quite a while with myself and three other guys. And I think only one of them had the, the rule books. And for the other ones, uh, if we found a PDF online, I you know we could get it that way. Or if they found a magic item and they wanted to know what it did, I would just take a picture of it and send it to them. Um, but I, I want to point out a lot of what I do is very low tech. And I'm a, I'm a big proponent of that. I think there's a lot of people who try to make things much more complicated than they need to. Um, I, I know I was playing the game once. I think it was Warhammer Quest, actually. And, and uh, there was some kind of a, an item that, that someone needed. And the one player was, hang on, let, let me look for that. And they're like scrolling through files and find, trying to find uh, you know, this file. And I just took a picture of it and said, you know, I'll just send it to you, you know, and in like a second they had it, you know, and a lot of people will try to overcomplicate things. And, you know, that's, that's where they want to like scan all of this stuff and upload it into tabletop simulator and, you know, and use all these drop down menus and clicking and dragging. And it's, it's way to me, that is such a buzzkill because you know these games are immersive and they're narrative and if you're spending too much time uh consulting rule books it can really slow things down and sap the fun right out of it so you know that's why i like to try to find a quick and easy answer and and keep the action going You've always kind of made yourself available to folks to test out remote gaming and to introduce them to it. What what kind of response have you had? Like with the folks that you've, you know, that have played a remote game for the first time with you. What's the what's the feedback been like? Well, um, you know, let me let me go off on a tangent here for a second because that reminds me of something else that is related to the question. Um, when I play remotely, I Right now, I'm exclusively using Discord. Um, I just find it has everything that I need. Now, I could use uh, FaceTime or Zoom or Google Meetings or whatever. But the thing that I really like about Discord is that it's it's like an open format where uh, I can play a game on Discord and you can also be on Discord and see that a game is in being played and you can join in and you know maybe ask questions or see what's going on and we can have conversations and that's what i really like about discord um and oftentimes i'll play a game remotely and someone will pop in the room and it's someone i know and next you know i'd start a conversation with them and and uh you know they're asking you know what's going on um Oftentimes people will come in and mute themselves and just watch the game. And what's really nice about that is uh, they're often helpful enough that they'll maybe take some screenshots, uh, something that I'm you know too busy to do, and they'll post it somewhere. So I'm thankful for that. But um, it's funny that the people who often will come in to a game and will, are people who I already know because they're comfortable with doing that. Sometimes I think 
if someone is in Discord and sees that a game is being played, they're hesitant to come join because they don't want to uh, they don't want to interrupt. Or maybe some you know someone will come in into the Discord channel and I'll hear the little uh, doorbell sound and I'll know someone's there, but they don't want to say anything or they'll, they'll mute themselves because they're afraid to interrupt. And um, uh, if anyone has ever done that, please interrupt. Please talk. You know, I, I want to to open up the conversation. I'll, you know, I answer any questions. And um, so anyway, I say all that because I feel like the response to people, um, you know, coming to me asking for a game is is very minimal. Very few people will uh, message me and say, "Hey, I'm interested in playing the game." Um, and I, I don't know what, maybe it's because I have an abrasive personality or maybe they're just afraid to, maybe they're, you know, like too, they don't want to bother me or something, but, um, there's definitely an open invitation to anybody who ever wants to play any game that I own. Um, now recently I did have a guy on, uh, there's a guy on Facebook who messaged me. I, I, I guess he had heard a podcast somewhere and, and, uh, I, I had spoken to him through another Facebook group and, and we organized a, a game and we played it. We had a lot of fun. Now we're talking about playing some other games, but the funny thing was he didn't even have, uh, he didn't even have discord. And I, I assumed that he was a member of the community, but he wasn't. Um, but if sometimes if someone will make a comment about a game, I might go out of my way to message them and say, Hey, if you ever want to play a game, I'm, I'm available to play something. Um, and for me, it, the reason I do that, it's it's kind of selfish. It's because I want to play games, and I'm looking for people to play games with me. Uh, this has been an ongoing struggle my entire gaming career. Is that I'll uh, when I was playing role playing games, I'd buy all these role playing games and be thinking, you know, dreaming about you know playing these games with uh, with like minded friends and never being able to and. And I'll buy a miniature game thinking, oh, this looks so cool. And I never get to play the games. But remote gaming has given me an opportunity to, to you know, play games that I would never otherwise get to play. Uh, I love the social aspect of it. Some of my, I, I've made some really good friends uh, playing remote games. And, um, you know, friends that i I don't just play games with them. I message them often and ask them how their day is going. And uh, it's, it's, for me, it's really an opportunity to, to expand my, my life in, in a lot of ways. So for anyone listening, Chris, that, that fancies taking you up on that offer and having a remote game, what's the best way to, for them to reach out to you? Uh, I guess discord or Facebook. Most of us, it seems are, members of groups um i i'm obviously in the uh, bedroom battlefields group um but yeah they can just just you know reach out message me in fact that's why i i made my my screen name um is my name because i want to be easily found As we uh, swing round to the end of our chat, Chris, I've, I've really enjoyed you know hearing your insights about Man of War and remote gaming. Is there anything that uh, that you know we you feel that we've not touched on that we maybe should have? Well, I'm um, 
let me ask you some questions. Um, and this is just for, just for my own personal um, benefit, really. I'm one, you asked me about remote gaming, and I'm, I'm curious what you know about remote gaming or what you think you know or, or think you knew about it before we had this conversation. Is there anything that you, um, that you thought about or, or were, uh, you know, hindrances, things that you thought, well, that can't work, or how do you do that? It, I think. I think um, because I've heard you on Josh's show talking about it, I had I think I had a decent understanding. This is this is definitely um, filled in a few gaps, but I think I think very back at the start when I'd heard about it, I think I subconsciously assumed it was almost like remote chess, where both players have the chessboard. So I, I probably thought without thinking too much about this. So so I, I guess like you know. Both players have got the same table and the same two armies, and they can both see the, you know. So I, I maybe, I maybe at some point thought it was like that, um, which is obviously that that would put way more barriers in front of you than than the way you're actually doing it. So um, no, I, I mean, I, I think um, I think it's a really cool idea. Uh, it's, it's something yeah. I'd, I'd like to try in the future, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you bring that up about the. Um you know, the, both sides having the, um, the train set up. Um, the most recent remote game I played was space Hulk and my opponent, it, it was funny. He, he messaged me and said, um, you know, maybe we could play some, some space Hulk. Uh, just give me some time because I don't have all my miniatures painted yet. And I thought, Oh, okay. He wants to, um, he wants to host the game. That That's fine. Um, but he was under the impression that we were going to both set up uh, the table on I, on both of our sides, you know. So when it came time to play a game, that's he had his his terrain all set or his uh, his table all set up already. Uh, and I said, okay, that's, we can try this because I'd never done that before, you know. Playing, um, you know, both sides have uh, the. Uh, all the miniatures and the and the board set up, and as we were playing it, uh, like he'd make a move, and then I would have to try to mimic what he did on my side, and, and vice versa, and uh, it it kind of slowed things down. Mm-hmm. And I was I was like, yeah, I don't know if we want to keep doing if we want to keep doing it like this. Um, what would what would have worked better, I think, is if um. You know, maybe uh, Space Hulk's a game that's probably meant to be played like you play a game of it and then you switch sides and play the same mission, but with the other side. And it could work in that regard where we, he, I could play you know, on my table and then we could switch sides and he could play on his table. But really, I thought it was more of a hindrance to play, uh, you know, to play like that, both, both set up. Uh, another thing that I get, I hear people say is, um, well, how do you know what, what, the, what, uh, their roles are? You know, if, if somebody rolls a die, how do you know what they rolled? You know, should, shouldn't they have a camera set up for that? You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm like, well, why would I need to see their roles? You know, like, well, what if they're, what if they're cheating? You know? And that just kind of blew my mind, you know, like, why would I, 
why would I do that? Um, yeah, it's like the least I'm, likely scenario for somebody cheating ever. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, I'll tell you what, I am going to tell you, I'm going to be very candid with you, and I'm going to tell you a little anecdote here. Um, I've told this to others before, but I'll say it again. Uh, my One of my very first remote games, I was hosting Warhammer Quest. This is the 1995 Warhammer Quest. And if anybody who's ever played that game, it's very brutal. So uh, depending on how the die rolls go, you know, you could instantly be ambushed by minotaurs and, you know, and it's all downhill from there. So we're playing this game and I was playing with all people who've never played before. So I wanted to have a fun experience for them. And we were playing through the, the game, the, the, the dungeon there and things were going well and having a lot of fun. It was a tense moment. It was in the middle of a battle. And then the one started to be rolled and more monsters appeared and things looked like they were going to get out of hand. Um, And we were at a a really crucial moment where it looked like the heroes were done for. Uh, And it was my turn as the, like the dungeon master or whatever, to roll for the monsters. And the Minotaur uh, was was attacking this hero, and if he hit, it was it was just all going to go downhill from there. So I rolled the die to hit, and it tumbled across the table, and sure enough, it was a hit. Um, but I, I, in a split second, I looked at my phone, and I could see that the die was out of camera view. And as soon as it was rolled a hit, I quick snatched it up because I thought, well, no one saw that. And I rolled it again. Oh, it's a miss. We're saved, you know? And um, a couple seconds later, I get a, a message on my phone and it's one of the the guys watching the game who was a friend of mine. <clears throat> and he said, uh, Chris, be careful. We can see those rolls. And my heart sank and I felt terrible because I kind of fudged that role because I wanted everyone to have a good time. And I was afraid that if the Minotaur smacked this guy, surely he was going to kill him and it would all, you know, it would end in defeat, but I wanted everyone to be happy. And it was kind of a humbling experience. And I, since then I realized, cause now I like all those guys who I was playing with, I've become friends with all them and I played multiple remote games with them. And I realized that like, they don't care about having, you know, about winning or losing. They would much rather see things play out and tell a good story. And, uh, I, you know, I, since then I have been very, uh, deliberate about making sure that all of my roles are easily seen in, in the camera view. And, uh, you know, I kind of learned a lesson about, what people really value. And for the most part, uh, if you're playing a, if you're playing a remote game and you have a competitive streak to you, or, you know, you're concerned about, um, you know, the minutia of, of ranges and line of sights and, and all, you know, all this stuff, uh, it might not be something that is going to work out for you. Yeah, I think there's a certain, you certainly kind of have to have a, you know, a, the proper spirit in order, you know, to, to play a remote game. Uh, because 
when I'm playing, my competitive nature just goes out the window. I am, I'm having fun. I'm socializing. I'm telling a story. Uh, it's, it seems, you know, more of a cooperative kind of thing, even, even when it's a competitive game. Uh, when I play Space Hulk and I'm playing as the, the Gene Steelers, um, I'm kind of rooting for the other guy because those are the good guys and I want the good guys to win. And my record, uh, with winning with Space Hulk is not very good because, and I don't know why I think it's because while I'm playing, I'm kind of offering some, uh, you know, some tactical advice. Usually if it's, you know, if it's a new player, uh, you know, I kind of say, well, here's some things you could do. So I'm, I'm not very competitive at all. And it shows with my winning record, but that's, <laughs> that's that. Yeah. It's nice to hear that the one time you cheated, <laughs> it was cheating for, for good rather than for oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cheating for narrative. So yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would, I would like to really encourage uh, other people to get involved in hosting games. Um, I didn't mention this, but I'm not the only one who hosts games. I've I've played as the remote player in a number of games. I have a friend of mine um, who owns multiple Warhammer Fantasy armies. And that's a game that I really enjoy, but there's no way that I'm ever going to be able to um, collect and paint uh, an army in a sufficient amount of time to be able to play a game. So the fact that I can play that game with his stuff uh, remotely is is awesome. I played a number of games of you know Warhammer um, Fantasy with him, and uh, yeah. So my my plea to anyone out there is if you have the ability and you have the, the miniatures that you can play uh, some of these games that other people don't have, um, you know, consider becoming a remote host. And um, all you really need is, uh, I mean, if you have a, a smartphone, you have everything you need because it's the camera and the microphone. And if you can carry a conversation on the telephone you're halfway there because that's that's really all you need to do is to be able to communicate. Um, I've played remotely with people whose language is not uh, their primary language is not English, and had, haven't had any any problems with that. So if you're a non-native, you know, English speaker, that's there's no problem with that either. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast. If you enjoy the show, then please do share it with someone else you think might enjoy it too. And be sure to check out our Discord community of like-minded hobbyists, which you can find at bedroombattlefields.com forward slash discord. It'd be great to see you in there.